Father, we come before you this morning just in awe of how you use us and the things that you have made and how you have set things in order. Uh, The powers that be and the governments and the people that exist and the planets and the rotation, the universe, it is just all so marvelous, Lord, what you have done. We give you the credit for that. It is not the creation of humankind. But Lord, as we look to the creation of the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. Help us to learn from the lessons that they learned. Help us to glean the insights, things that, Lord, will help us in this life to be the disciples you've asked us to be. We know that you can do this. We know that you can fill us full of your spirit. You can guide us. You speak clearly. We don't hear clearly, but we ask that you would give us ears to hear. Give us clarity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in Exodus chapter 7, and I'm going to back up just a little bit and review here. We had the first miracle, and then it's the beginning of the plagues. And of course, the first miracle that took place when Moses and Aaron showed up were the staves being turned into snakes, and probably the snakes were cobras dealing with the gods and the nation of Egypt. God was just simply saying, our God was simply saying, they are nothing. And of course, Aaron put down the rod, and Moses' rod ate the two other snakes that the magicians were able to reproduce through some type of dark magic or even demon influence. So then there was the first counterfeit miracle, that was it. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. And we've already covered the idea that God was hardening his heart. He was simply establishing what was already the case with Pharaoh's heart. And then thirdly, Satan can bring about counterfeit miracles. I wanted to make this point. Especially in the end times, there are going to be things that we're, if we were here, of course we believe in the rapture here, if we were here, we would see things so fantastic that we would want to say it's of God. You know, like the parting of the Red Sea. And as they went through the Red Sea, I know... Discovery Channel and all these other commentators like to say, well, it was the winds that blew. No, I'm sorry. The Bible says the water was a wall on either side. And you could walk by and stick your hand in it and pull it out. It would be a pretty incredible miracle to see something like that. If you saw that kind of miracle today, you would think, it's got to be God, right? Well, no, Satan can counterfeit the miracles. And so people that are left behind here after the rapture need to be aware of this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the works of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So Satan is the purveyor of these false miracles, but they will break the natural bounds of what is here on earth and become supernatural to those who view them. Jesus warned us to be on the outlook for these false Christs and the false miracles. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 
24, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So Jesus said, this is going to happen. This is going to take place. And when it takes place, if somebody performs a miracle and they have a message that is different from Scripture, you want to make sure you reject the miracle and what they're saying. You just walk away saying, this is not of God, no matter what takes place in the miraculous realm. Fifth, there were two of these magicians that are named, it appears, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. I'd like you to turn over there. When these two rods were set down, there were probably two magicians that came up, and they set down their staves. And, of course, Aaron's staff was down there, and it had become a snake, probably a cobra of some kind, just because that was representative of the snakes, the goddess uh, in the nation of Israel, or, excuse me, in the nation of Egypt. And so these two magicians are named as giving Moses a hard time. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. Now, how, if you read the text there, you go, how is it that Janus and Jambres were these men? Magicians. It's not named there that these guys are the magicians. At this particular point, it is helpful to go to extra-biblical sources. And in the Targum of Jonathan, it mentions Janus and Jambres. And you might say, what is the Targum of Jonathan? It is a writing of the Torah, or the first five books, the Pentateuch of Moses. And it's commentary about that. And it's centuries old. And so they wrote about it back then who these guys were and that's why it is believed that Janus and Jambres in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 are two of the magicians that are named that are opposing to Moses in what he's trying to do for God and so that little tidbit it, it's helpful to fill it in but you do have to do some digging to find this and then there's this second miracle and the first plague before Pharaoh in verse 19 of chapter 7 the lord said to moses exodus chapter 7 the lord said to moses tell aaron take your staff and stretch out your hand over the water of egypt over the streams and canals over the ponds and all the reservoirs and they will turn to blood blood will be everywhere in egypt even in the wooden bucket and stone jars moses and aaron did just as the lord had commanded he raised his staff in the presence of pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the nile and all the water was changed into blood the fish in the nile died and the river smelled so bad that egyptians could not drink its water blood was everywhere in egypt now, i don't know about you but have you ever smelled large quantities of blood I've been to a slaughterhouse, in the slaughterhouse, right next to the cow that was being slaughtered, and there is the distinct smell. It's not fragrant, it's a smell. And when you're in there, you just walk in, you can smell it. Somebody who is a butcher, if they go into the back room at one of the grocery stores where they have all the carcasses hanging, or if you go into a freezer, you can smell that smell in there as well. But imagine a whole river being blood. Now, again, the Discovery Channel or Peter Jennings may make a um, commentary, or not commentary, documentary about something like this, and they'll say something like, well, it's similar to the red tide that happens in Southern California. You guys ever seen the red tide that's out there? They say, hey, it turned red, and it looked like blood, but it wasn't blood. That wouldn't explain all the mass death of the fish and the organisms that are there, even though fish die in the red tide as well because it robs it of oxygen. 
But the people, it, it smelled. Now, when I'm out on the ocean and I, there's a red tide out there, it doesn't smell any different than the rest of the ocean. But this, it stank. You know, is that a good word? It stank. There was a stench. It was terrible. You'd have to hold your nose type of thing. And it lasted for three days. And even the water in the buckets and barrels, that turned as well. Now, the people got water by going digging off the Nile and digging new wells and getting water by that means. That's what they did. But this, I believe, turned to actual blood. If it's not actual blood... There's this element of deception taking place in the writer. That the writer is not being truthful. He says it turns into blood. And of course, I'm a literalist when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. If he said it turned to blood, it turned to blood. Just like if there were frogs, what were they? Frogs. You know, if, if there were lice or gnats, what were they? They were lice or gnats. And the language is given in the form of a narrative. It's just given in the form of a story. It's not a similitude. It's not a metaphor, any of those things. And so you take it on face value. It turned to blood. You don't have to come up with an alternate explanation. There's this other explanation out there that, you know, it was just a bunch of little insects that were red and they were everywhere and they just ruined the water. And when they died, they kind of smelled up the place. That's not true. When God says it's blood, it's blood. Now, God is carrying this out because of the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh. And remember, Pharaoh is representative of Satan, the world, all of Egypt, the system that is going to be destroyed. And God's coming in and saying, you are nothing referring to those systems and to Satan himself. Now, he did it through the example of Pharaoh going on with this second counterfeit miracle. But the Egyptians, verse 22 did the same things by their secret arts. Now, is this stupid or what? You have water and you, you see it turned into blood. And so you grab water and you go, well, I can do that too. And they only increase their own suffering by changing the water into blood. Like, you can't get anything on me. It's like, this is just idiotic to be able to do stuff. But in order to say that we're equal, they're willing to do damage to them, their, own, their own selves, so to speak in order to carry out these so-called false miracles. And it goes on to say, instead, or wait, it says, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Could you imagine smelling that stench for seven days? blood flowing over the Nile. And this was the first of these plagues coming along. Now, with this Nile, there was this Egyptian god whose name was Happy, H-A-P-I. And he was always depicted as a portly man. And actually, when you look at the uh, hieroglyphs of him, he's kind of slender everywhere except for his belly. But then he also has breasts like a woman. A little gender confusion even back then. But this, this idea that that's what this God was, and he was the God of the Nile, and the reason that this guy, God, had these breasts, it was a symbol of fertility, is what it was. That the sustenance comes from the Nile, and that's why they created this God to represent that. It would have been at this particular time, probably in July or August, they've been able to pin down that time, that Pharaoh would have been going out and being paying homage to Happy. 
he would have gone to a ceremony. For instance, in this country, we have a habit on Easter of celebrating Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. In Egypt, Pharaoh would have been the potentate. He would have been the one in charge that would have shown up and probably poured water out of the jars and give praise to happy who is out there and everybody would rejoice and they'd have a feast and that's what they would have done. It could have been that on the morning that the Pharaoh goes out and he goes down to the River Nile and that's when Moses and Aaron meet him, that that particular day he was probably having a ceremony because it was in the July-August time where they were having these festivals because of this river god, this happy guy. And so it's going to ruin the festival, right? If you read this extra biblical material, you go, wow, how God just fit everything together in there. And you can't say, well, it's scripture, but it does kind of fill in some of the blanks. So if God's going to disrupt the nation of Egypt, it's perfect time to do it. Take their national holidays, their celebration. I'm going to wipe those things out, make sure that these gods are nothing. And that's what he did. Now we go on with this. As far as these plagues are concerned there were 10 plagues total that we're going to go through here there's water turned into blood there's frogs there's lice there's flies there's diseased livestock there's boils there's hail there's locusts there's darkness and finally the death of the firstborn now going on with this in first john no let me go on this water being turned into blood this is a preview of coming attractions. I would like you to turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 3. All of these signs, these signs of these plagues that were given, were given to let us know also what was going to take place in the future. In Revelation, chapter 16, it tells us that this is going to be repeated on a larger scale. Revelation chapter 16, verse 3, The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. So this is going to happen as one of God's judgments, and they are called righteous and true. He is just and true in what he does. But the way that you will know that this is from God, the way the people of the earth will know that this judgment is from God, because this has never happened before except for once in history where an entire ocean has become blood. Now, if you had to guess which ocean, I don't know, maybe the Mediterranean because that's the area of the Middle East, maybe going into the Atlantic, I don't know which one is going to be turned into blood or if it's all the oceans. I tend to think it's one ocean and they're going to die, all the fish are going to die in that particular ocean. And so we have to pay attention to this when we see these miracles taking place, that God has set these up not only for those people at the time, not only to communicate a message to us of God's judgment and his righteousness, but also what is going to take place inside of the future. And so we have to be prepared for that and be willing to communicate that to others. Now going on with this. We have the second plague of frogs in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 1. Let's go back there, please. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs, and they will come up into your palace 
and your bedroom and onto your bed into the houses of your officials and your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things. Again, how stupid is this? They're doing the same thing. They're just adding to their own misery. And why would you do that? Just to prove a point? You know, this is, it's just insane. By their secret arts, they also made frogs come up On the land of Egypt, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take away, take frogs away from me and the people, and I will let people go, or your people go, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I will leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. If you were given the choice, when it could end. When would you say? Yeah. Again, stupid. Verse 10. Tomorrow, Pharaoh says. Not right now. Tomorrow. Now, why is it the stubbornness of his heart? I'm going to set the time. I'm going to make sure this is when it happens. And nobody's going to tell me any different. You got it, Moses. As you have said it. And he just kind of walks away. I mean, the the stubbornness that is inside the heart, the heart that is of stone, that will not respond to the God of the universe that is doing this, what is wrong? Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh is not only Satan and representative of Egypt and the world, but he's representative of us in our flesh. Not us being reborn, giving new life but us in our flesh. We are just as stubborn and obstinate. Now, I've already told you this, dealing with Pharaoh, but look how severe it is. He is willing to instruct his magicians to do things that continue the harm, which means we are harmful to ourselves. And and the New Testament says we are utterly harmful. You know, this idea that we're, I'm a good person. We're not good people. Scripture says, no, you are rotten. You're so bad, you're going to have to be destroyed, right? But the grace, now this is the good part. This is the good news. The grace of God comes along and says, I know the state that you find yourself in. And I know this is a result of the judgment which has come because of the fall of Adam and Eve. I get that. But I'm going to give you a way out. And I'm going to talk to you many different ways at many different times in order so you can have this way out. This is the grace of God. I'm going to do it anyhow. Even though you're going to kill my son, I'm going to do this anyhow for you. That's the good news. That's what Christmas is all about. When we get to Christmas, we go, yeah, presents, but the greatest gift of all is Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And that's why we do these works like we have done just over on Christmas on the main over here because of what Christ has done for us. And so during this time of year, and we'll probably end it right here because we are going to receive communion this morning. If Pharaoh would have simply said, Okay, whatever you want. You know, we're going to repent. We're going to turn this thing around. Whatever the God of Israel says, that's what we're going to do. Who knows? We might eventually see Pharaoh in heaven, but that's not the case. That's not going to happen. And so how do we apply all of this? 
This idea that Pharaoh was so hard in his heart that he would not accept the God of Israel led to his demise and the death of the firstborn eventually in these plagues. Relating that to us, we should not be like Pharaoh where it eventually leads to the most precious thing that we have, our own lives. They can be squandered. They can be spent. How do we turn that around? I think most all of you know how we turn that around. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If you've never said that prayer, that's what entitles you to salvation. That's what entitles you to go to heaven. You cannot go to heaven by any other means. Not by what you give, not by what you do, not by working Christmas on the main, none of that stuff. God's not going to look to any of it and say, you're so good, because we're not. We're not good. So that's my prayer for you, that as when we get the guys to come up, we're going to play a song. As that's taking place, if you're unsure, if you're like Pharaoh in the world, and you want to go to heaven and be like Jesus Christ, who is sacrificial, because that's where we're going to spend eternity, all you have to do is say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I repent. I turn. That's all he asks us to do. Now, what we're going to do at this point is the worship team is going to come up. You guys are going to come up, and you can do that now. You can come and get these platters and pass them out. And as they're being passed out, I'd like you to hold on to the cup and to the bread so that we can participate in receiving these things together. And as the song is being sung, if you guys want to say that prayer just saying, Jesus, please forgive me my sins, This would be the time to do it.